once again, we're all prepared here for another great salute to mankind's eternal battle against the fantastic forces that surround him out there in outer darkness and including, uh, oh, shucks, what the heck was that? Uh, oh, uh, by George, I forgot what those eternal forces are, but, uh, Nevertheless, in the next 45 minutes, friend, we will also include our famous salute to Jack Lascouli and other great benefactors of mankind. So stand by. Hello, Jack. Oh, there. You know, they changes the battery in his teeth every six weeks. Very uh, rechargeable there. Bring it up. We ought to give you this disclaimer that, well, I, I don't know quite how to approach this, but uh, you're not going to like tonight's program, so I just thought I'd tell you before. I don't want any misunderstanding. You're just not going to like it. I Charles. You ready in there, Al? And I turn all the little switches on now. All right, all set now. We're ready for tonight's salute to one of our fellow denizens of this great, fantastic, spinning, gigantic meatball called Earth. Bring it up there, quick. Hit it. All together now. Hooray. Bye, 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 balloons. Oh, I don't care what you say to me, I am still bugged about that promotion that that crummy tiger is getting in that in that uh, that election as to whether or not the tiger is going to get elected to the ad manager. I have not seen one crow ad manager spot yet on television. Not one. Boy, you talk about the minorities not being heard from. I'll tell you, you t the tiger... Believe me, friends, uh, I still say it, that the, the tiger lobby must be fantastic. And, and it's getting so sickening. One kid wrote me, says, Shepard, he says, man, were you right? Have you seen that most recent ad? It shows this tiger licking his chops. You could see his stomach sticking out big and fat. And, um, yeah, he, uh, the tiger says, I've just put an SO dealer into my tank. He's licking his chops. Are you going to vote for something like that? Yeah, that's right. I'll tell you, people are always... You know, there's an old philosophical uh, canard. And there's nothing like a philosophical canard for getting the evening off. Oh, yeah, you hear them, uh, Huntley Brinkley, they come out with us all the time, these canards. That's Walter Kiernan's special beat. And uh, the canard, the, 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 uh, the philosophical canard, you know, there's an old one around that says that man is inevitably drawn to the very thing that is his uh, most persistent enemy. Oh, yeah, it's the truth. He's drawn to it. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why people are more inclined to, to vote for tigers as opposed to ad managers. I, you know, there's a, there's a theory about, oh, yeah, what if they said uh, there is a giraffe in your tank? You'd get bugged, and you'd demand better filters. Get them giraffes out of your gas. Who needs giraffes in the gas, you know? But if they tell you there's a tiger in your tank, well, you know, you like the idea. Of it. But speaking of that, I, uh, you know, being an old gas siphoner from way back, 
I haven't tried any of this SO, uh, you know, with the Tiger in it, because uh, there was a time in my life when I could tell you what brand of gasoline I was burning in my car just by the way it tasted. And uh, sure, oh, you know that, for example, are you aware that uh, Phillips now, Phillips, for those of you who don't know uh, anything about the various vintages of, of uh, high-octane gasoline produced today, that the, that the uh, super... The Phillips high octane Phillips gas is if you if you like a a dry sparkling flavor, that's the Phillips. Uh, unfortunately, I my taste, of course, it, it depends whether what you've had for dinner. Uh, you know, if you're if you're going to follow red meat, for example, if you've had some uh, uh, hamburgers at Charlie's Drive-In, that's red meat, right? And you're going to go out and siphon gas. Be sure to look for Texaco. Uh, Texaco. It has a rich Burgundian body to it. It's a, it's a more of a sweet uh, red wine type gasoline. Uh, if you if you really prefer some of the esoterica, for example, there's a, there's a uh, how many of you know anything about Greek wine? Well, you know there's an old slogan in the Middle East that a man who will drink Greek wine is capable of anything, and there's truth to that. Uh, uh, if, if some people do like the taste of paint and turpentine, I'm not putting a man down for his taste. Not at all. Not that bit. But, uh... <laughs> Stop it, Internet. That's sickening. But, uh, you, you, get, you, you pick up these little things as you go, and you learn, you learn what life is about. You don't, uh, you don't get as excited. Uh, uh, one of the best gases that I've ever had, a really fine gas for drinking purposes, is uh, the Amico unleaded white. This is very nice. It's an all-purpose uh, gas. Uh, uh, it's more or less like the rosé of gases. You know, it doesn't really make any difference what you've had for lunch or dinner. It's always. It's not very. Uh, it's not uh, definite or uh, makes a statement, but it's a nice working everyday gas. And uh, if you get uh, you know these things, incidentally, wouldn't that make a great ad campaign? You know, our gas tastes better. Uh, I thought I was being funny a few years ago when I remember when I had General Tire on my show. And, uh, you know, what are you going to say about a tire? So ultimately, I, I began to advertise. You know, it was on my own. I began to advertise that General Tires are rounder than other tires. I said, they're very round. Very round. It's a, a perfect geometrical figure. There's nothing prettier than a, a perfect circle. It's a, it's a geometric figure. And you remember when I used to do that, Al? And by George, what happened a couple of years later? I comes General Tire with an ad that says they're rounder. <laughs> so I'll guarantee you, by next year this time, one of the ad companies will come out for the dry, sparkling flavor. And uh, uh, low-calorie gasoline is always kind of nice today in this drive towards low-calorie things. But the reason that I... I uh, well, we better get out here with our commercial before we do anything else. Would you... Uh, wait a minute here. Speaking of, of great moments, though, in mankind, you hold on there a minute. Don't don't get alarmed. I know where I'm going here. Did you hear the story that happened out in Jersey here a couple of days ago? I want to give that guy a salute. It, it just got to be done. There's this truck driver sitting in a diner, see, and he's scoffing away. He's eating in a diner. Hey, you know, he's been driving a truck all night. He's tired, and uh, his big old rig is sitting out there in the in the yard there in front of the diner, you know, in the gravel, and he's eating his hamburgers. And in came three motorcycle cuckoos, you know, the kind with the black jackets, you know, with the big skulls and crossbones, with the sloping forehead, you know, the Neanderthal jaw, the prognathus, the whole bit, see, 
they come in with their arms swinging down around their kneecaps, you know. They come clomping in. And they see this truck driver sitting over there. He's quietly eating away. They see him, so they start badgering him. I'm quoting the, the exact uh, uh, report by the reporter on the scene. They started to badger him. Oh, you know, they said, motorcycle. Hey, who are you looking at, Mac, huh? Hey, I think you're smart, huh? You want to fight, huh? And they're badgering him, see? And they go on like this for about a half an hour. These three, you notice it was three motorcycle cuckoos badgering one truck driver sitting there eating his hamburger. And he doesn't do anything. He sits there and they're badgering the Hey, hey, Mac, why you, you get that jacket, huh? You make it yourself? <laughs> hey, Matty, I already put him out of here. Hey, hey, buddy, huh? You want to fight, huh? And they go on like this for half an hour. And finally, the truck driver quietly gets up and leaves. Ten minutes later, the motorcycle cuckoos to go out. They go out to get their, you know, their Harley Davidson hogs. And the three of them, their motorcycles, are laying on the are laying out there on the gravel. Somebody has run over their motorcycles 37 times repeatedly, what appears to be with a gigantic truck of some kind. That flat. And then the report went on to say, conveniently or strangely enough, nobody who was around could remember the license number of the truck. And they couldn't even remember what kind of a truck. They couldn't even remember what it said on the side of the truck. They couldn't even remember a truck being there. I thought we'd like to salute that unsung, that alone, that solo truck driver out there. Man, you hit them motorcycle cuckoos where it counts. No! Oh, yeah, that reminds me. This is W.O.R. And um, we're here in the big old fun city. This is Radio Free Broadway. And this is me. Don't don't say I'm anti-motorcycle. As a matter of fact, you are listening to the owner of a Honda 305. Of course, I'm using the the, uh, correct New York pronunciation. Did I ever tell you about the guy that I knew who owned a Vesper motor scooter? Yeah, I used to say, I got a Vesper. (laughs) You're a little religious overtones there. And uh, speaking of religion here, we got a commercial. And if you're going to do a weekend electrical job this coming weekend, you know, it's already getting around that time, you better think of Rosetta, or if you prefer, Rosetta. And uh, they all got to have fantastic psychedelic chandeliers, which if looked at in the right light could even be chandeliers that could conceivably cause you to get busted if you put one of these up the right way with the light. But we don't want to go into that. They have desk lamps, bed lamps. The whole shtick. Everything in electrical, including wire, cables. If you're going to build, you know, a hobby, build a little electric chair or something around the house, they've got all the equipment. What's the matter? Wait, don't you know? An electric chair is one of those little motors that rock back and forth. It just rocks back and forth, you know. Well, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry you misinterpreted me, but Rosetta is one of the greatest electrical outfits in town. 75 West 45th Street... 30 years at 79 Chambers Street, and they have a gigantic new showroom at 73 Murray Street, just two blocks west of City Hall. And uh, In fact, the other day, a, a listener wrote me, and he says that uh, he was downtown, and he says he actually heard this. He's, a guy comes up and asks another guy on the street corner, he's waiting for the light to change, where's City Hall? 
The guy says, well, it's uh, two blocks east of Rosetta. <laughs> it's all a matter of viewpoint, friends. And if you would like a beautiful four-color catalog sent to you in plain brown wrapper, it's very interestingly illustrated, send your name and address to Rosetta. What a chick. Rosetta, here at WOR. We'll take care of it. Let's get another little salute on there. Bring it on there quick, Al. Here. Oh, they got there. That was a good commercial. Five, five blues. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Just me and my shadow. Hold it there. That's enough of that. This is a Barry Farber cigar, for crying out loud. <laughs> Boy, anybody who will smoke a cigar given to him by a southerner is capable of anything, I'll tell you. Where. Oh, good. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you, this cigar reminds me of a joke about cigars I once heard that involved the Russian track team at the Olympics. That's right. I'm not going to tell it to you on the air. For those of you that are interested in this, a fantastic joke. You just send your name and address to Jokey. You must be over 21. That's J-O-K-E-E, -E, Jokey. And we always send it to you in a plain brown... You must be over 21, and you must be able to prove that you are an art lover. Okay? What a cigar. Terrible. Uh, speaking of, of, of uh, awful things here, a couple of nights ago, we... Uh, I, I, every year this, this happens, and I, I want to get right down to it. Now, this is the unpleasant part of the program. Uh, man, you know, is, is fighting a losing battle against a lot of things. There's no question. And not only is he fighting a losing battle against man himself, I mean, we know that this is a losing thing, but he's fighting a losing battle against many things today. Uh, how many of you have been watching with great interest the invasion of Jersey by cockroaches? You've been hearing about that? Oh, I'm serious. There's been all kinds of reports in the paper all over Jersey, the big cockroach invasion this year. And uh, I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that the cockroaches picked Jersey. I think one follows the other. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm pro-cockroach. Remember, I'm not anti-cockroach. I, uh, I was uh, a little surprised the other night. I'm watching television on a, on a color set, Al. And, you know, the, on color, you see all kinds of stuff you don't see on black and white. And I'm... I'm watching on color, and one of the most sickening commercials I ever saw in my life. Did you see that commercial with the jar full of those poor little cockroaches? Did you see that one? And they come on, and they says, within 12 seconds, these little cockroaches will have gone to meet their maker, and they squirt this stuff on right there on television. It's a, and they say that this is not a violent society. That was, I mean, I'm telling you, know. And uh, to an old cockroach fan, I mean, it was a sickening scene to see those poor little cockroaches going down the drain. Well, I want to report, however, that the, that the various animals that are being trundled underground and being pushed around by man are not necessarily taking it lying down. Uh, are there any other starling fans out there? I think the starling is one of the greatest birds in the history of mankind. Did I tell you what happened to me on the island of Barbados with a starling? No, it was on the island of Grenada with a starling. I never, I never actually had this ever happen to me before. I'm sitting out on a patio. See, they got this little patio out in front of this joint where I'm staying and down. I can see the ocean down there. Everything's beautiful. It's like out of a Dorothy L'Amour, John Hall type movie. You know, any minute now, you expect to see somebody come out of the swimming pool. Uh, yeah, and you always think, too, down there, that, that you're going to have this great adventure. This is one of the things about going to the islands. It never happens. But you always expect 
uh, dusky eyes to peer out at you from the bushes, you know. Yeah, you know. And I'm sitting on the on the patio there. It's breakfast. The guy brings the he brings the breakfast. He puts it down. I'm sitting there looking at it. I'm feeling kind of crummy. You know, there'd been a big party the night before and a lot of rum punch and all that stuff. And I'm looking down at the breakfast. And I had a glass of guava juice. Now, guava juice is not palatable. Nobody, nobody who likes guava, I, I seriously believe that anybody who does like guava juice is a dangerous person. Uh, guava juice, I'll tell you what it tastes like. Have you ever had caro syrup? You know what caro syrup is, the stuff you put on pancakes? Well, if you can imagine somebody saying, well, caro syrup isn't sweet enough, we'll have to sweeten it. Well, <laughs> That's what this stuff is like. It's oh, it's it's really icky. See? And uh, so they they bring me this guava juice, which is uh, so sweet. I'll tell you, it, it makes fur grow on your teeth just to think about it. Oh, it's just terrible. And uh, and it's also watery kind. It has no taste at all, except very sweet. So they bring me the guava juice. And I look at the guava juice, and they bring me this totally impalatable. Uh, one thing that the islands do not run to is good coffee. Don't think that you're going to get a decent cup of coffee anywhere in the islands and so i got this this uh, this coffee that looks like it's kind of uh, diluted ink and uh, there's my guava juice and i'm feeling rotten my tongue is uh, made out of bales of tar paper anyway and uh, yeah uh, it's the funniest thing you know i it was not until i till i began to uh, to drink uh, some rum down there that i realized that uh, certain mornings you know that have you ever had the feeling where twigs are growing out of your ears it's very funny, you know. It's serious, and there were little. I could, I could hear the leaves rattling when I would turn my head. I could hear I had twigs and stuff, and, and I'm sitting there, and I'm kind of bugged. And the ocean is coming in over there, and the sun is is now up well over the horizon. It's about nine thirty in the morning, and I should be uh, walking with a spring in my step. And right next to me, there's a bush, and I became conscious of somebody watching me. You know that feeling that somebody's looking at me? And I look around. I don't see anybody. I see the ocean down there. I see the sun. And I hear the pine, the palm trees. The wind is blowing through them. And I can hear my twigs rattling as I turn my head, looking around. The leaves and all that. You know, I had leaves and everything. I, it was a very funny thing. I had even corn borders growing in the leaves. And I turned my head a little bit. There's something looking at me. And I, I could figure out where it was. And then I see two little beady eyes peering out of the bush right next to me. You were like two feet away. These little eyes looking at me. And, you know, you're, I'm in a tropic, so I, I expect anything. They told me that they had mongooses around there. And they said, watch out for the mongoose. I said, well, I've never done anything to mongoose. Why should I watch out for them? Just watch out. And, uh, so I've been watching for mongoose. You know, it's terrible to find yourself walking along and you're being careful of the mongoose. I mean, <laughs> so I'm, I'm careful of the mongoose, and I've been looking for various types of things, but I did not expect one to be sitting right next to me on the patio looking out of the bush through the eyes. So I look at the eyes, and I begin to see that it is a bird. He's just looking motionless out of the bushes at me. Well, right in front of me is my breakfast, which was consisting of two tropical-type eggs. Now, a tropical egg is different from a real egg. I don't, I don't know what kind of birds lay these eggs or whether they're birds at all, but they're, they're, uh, <laughs> they're, they're a tropical-type egg. And so, you know, you know when, you're, when you're on a trip in certain parts of the world, you don't ask things too carefully. You, don't, you just don't want to pursue them too, 
too too deeply because you may find out the truth, and that may be quite unpleasant. So you just simply say eggs, and the guy brings you eggs. Now they could be laid by armadillos. You don't know. It's, they did have armadillos off this island. That was another thing. You could hear them rattling in the bushes once in a while. Listen, there's nothing more exciting than one armadillo meeting another armadillo on a one-way path. And, uh, yeah, they, they uh, once in a while you'd hear them in the bushes meeting, and uh, especially when two armadillos are interested in what armadillos appear to be interested in a lot of the time, from what I understand down there. There's a lot of activity in certain areas that the armadillo... The armadillo, really, he does not spin, you know. Uh, he does not build. Uh, the armadillo doesn't read much. And yet, I, I have to point out that where there are armadillos, there are a hell of a lot of them. So there is one thing that the armadillo is very good at and uh, pursues quite a bit. And I'll, I'll tell you this, one of the more exciting moments is to, is to hear two armadillos who have uh, casually encountered each other in the bushes. You know, they're covered with armor plate. And if you want to hear a lot of noise, man, it's two armadillos, especially when they're of the same sex. And, you know, it takes an armadillo a long time to discover that, uh, that this, and, uh, you know, it, gets, it goes on and on. You, you want to hear more about this, this subject? It gets a little difficult here at times. But, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, and I'm, I'm sitting there eating my breakfast, and I, I haven't even started on these eggs. Now, I, I, they, they were kind of peculiar-looking eggs. They were sort of greenish and the uh, first thing that went through my mind, I wonder, you know, what armadillo eggs actually taste like, especially if they're sunny side up. These were sunny side up, two little green eyes looking up at me, you know, the yolks there. So uh, I figured, well, what the heck, you know, when you're in Rome or when you're in Grenadas, you do what, what the Grenadian does. So I take my little fork there, and I'm just about to attack these two green eggs when all of a sudden, out of the bushes, this bird goes, ah! I look over at him, and his eyes are looking at me like that. And he emerges from the, from the darkness, and now he's sitting on the edge of a twig. It is the biggest, blackest, sleekest, sneakiest-looking starling I've ever seen in my life. A plain, ordinary, working New York starling. He's down there for the summer, you know. And uh, he gives a yell. Ah! He comes flying over, lands right next to my guava juice. There I am. I'm sitting there now, see? Eggs in front of me. Guava juice over here. Over here is the, the coffee. The bird is right in the middle of it all. Boy, what a big son of a gun. He looks around, and he sticks his beak in the guava juice. Well, obviously, this was a bird of good taste. He took one sip of the guava juice, and you could just see he went... <laughs> It, it's, it, it, it kind of throws you a little bit to see a bird standing on your breakfast table spitting, you know. Dah. <clears throat> he looked around, and he spotted the eggs. Well, I never saw a faster movement in my life. I, I guess about the only thing that I've seen that comes close to it was Phil Rizzuto trying to beat out a bunt. There was a lot of scurrying. His beak went down. I saw it went down only once. I, I, I watched it just went down quick. And my eggs were gone. That damn bird got my eggs. Just stood. It didn't fly away either. That's what I want. The point I'm making. He did not fly away. You know, as if expecting any kind of retribution. He just stood there, looked around. <clears throat> he let one go. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, look at that. You know. He looks around again. 
He spots the coffee. You see, obviously, he's used the coffee with his breakfast. He goes over there and he sips a little of the coffee and again, that mud they were giving us. And he takes one of the squares of sugar and flies away. There I sat with my breakfast in front of me. Guava juice, lukewarm coffee. The green eggs are gone. And I'd learned another lesson. Another lesson of the starling world. I see why we hate starlings. You know, starling is the most hated bird next to the pigeon. Yeah, people hate pigeons and they hate starlings. Not necessarily in that order. The starling is number one, and I'm going to tell you why we hate starlings. Because they're the most people-like bird anywhere. Yeah, you, you would never see a wren come over and steal your eggs. Or a bluebird. See, we love bluebirds. You know, a bluebird is definitely a bird. But have you ever seen a starling walking along, say, on, in Central Park? You know, they don't walk like ordinary birds. You know how ordinary birds hop? The starling bends his knees. He does. He walks around with his knees bending. You know, he hobbles back and forth. And the starling is the first bird to take up smoking. They snipe cigar butts. You know, you see a starling with a cigar butt stuck in his beak. Oh, many times I've seen starlings hiding in the privet hedges out along Central Park looking at chicks, yelling and hollering. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and then showing off. You take off and do a couple of slow rolls, and the guy that's with the chick gets bugged. He can't do any slow rolls, you know. And the starling squawks, makes a dirty crack, and goes back into the bushes. We hate starlings. And another thing why we hate starlings is that the starling, more than any other bird with the possible exception of the pigeon, is a non-country bird. He doesn't stay out in the woods where birds should be. He is a city bird. And, and for that reason, is an urban bird. He is, and we're urban birds, you know. After all, the, the urge of every guy growing up in Chillicothe, Ohio, is to make it to the big city, you know. This is obviously true of every starling. And I have a, a report here tonight about starlings. You know, the starling is a foreign bird, too, you know. I think that's one of the reasons why we're bugged by it. You know how the starling got into this country? Any of you know? Well, the starling was brought into this country... Uh, oh, I guess around 100 years or so ago. And he's an English bird. And he was brought into this country, and they brought in, I think, uh, specifically to fight some kind of an insect. And within 15 minutes after the first starling landed, he realized he had hit home plate. And five minutes later, he was doing what starlings apparently do best, because 20 minutes after that, there were 30,000 extra starlings. And, and uh, now, here we've got a starling population that is bigger than the people population. Oh, yeah, one night. Did you ever hear about the night uh, I was out in Stamford, Connecticut, and they got a, uh, or is it there yet? They've got this big clock, and the, the clock is in the steeple out there, and it's lit up. And at night, when the guys, you know, they're, they're telling their wives, you know, they're faking it and telling them that they've been in town working with the art director on the new layout. Well, that's only partially true, you know. And <laughs> they've been hanging around. Uh, you know, they come home at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. This friend of mine said he came home one night. He says, a terrible scene. He said he arrived home about 2 o'clock in the morning, walking along the main street there. And he says he looks up at the clock, and here's the clock, this big old clock, you know, that's a big town clock. 
And he said there must have been 45,000 starlings sitting on the minute hand, hanging on it, swinging and yelling. He says it was wild. And they were, he says, he swears, he, he looked at that thing for five minutes and they were holding the, the clock back. He said, you know, he said, obviously, he said they weren't sitting on the hour hand, it was the minute hand they were sitting on. And so the starling, you see, has got more going for him than just being a bird. And here is a report from the New Scientist, which is a very official scientific journal in England, about the starling and a specific attitude of the starling. And uh, for years now, we've kept you alert as to what's developing in the starling world. And this is one of the most interesting to me aspects of the contemporary starling. As a successful exploiter, and we're quoting the New Scientist, very official magazine, as a successful exploiter of man's operations against nature, the starling, says Dr. Max Nicholson, the former director of the Nature Conservancy, is matched only by the house sparrow. The starling can be found on coasts, rocky as well as muddy or sandy. They infest estuaries, marshes, riverbeds, sewage farms, lakes, reservoirs, parks, open woodlands, orchards, cultivated land, heath and moorland, airfields, and cemeteries. They are adept at finding a cozy niche for the night in ancient windmills, granaries, barns, on the ledges of urban buildings, especially town halls. They make that point that the starling is drawn to the city hall. Now, I'm not kidding you. Do you know that the, that the city of Cincinnati, at certain times, are, are you aware that the, the Cincinnati is the Riviera of the starling world of America? No kidding. They have the worst starling problem in the world, and certainly uh, the worst in America. But certain hours of the night, when you walk down into the uh, center of Cincinnati, around the, around the city hall, you would swear that Cincinnati has a city hall made of starlings gigantic pile of starlings. And that was where I first came into contact with the fight against the starling that is being waged by the American people. Did I ever tell you about this, the owls? Somebody had the idea that starlings hate owls and are afraid of them. And also that owls love starlings and go after them. So they put aluminum owls all around the outside of the city hall in Cincinnati. And within 20 minutes, every starling from 40 counties around had arrived to yell at the aluminum owls. And, and, and what's worse, that three years later, there were aluminum starlings around. You know, the starling, you'll swing with anything. You know? <laughs> Just, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's all part of the seed. And I want, to, I want to read more about what England has done. You, you, when you hear what they've done over there, uh, uh, one of the newest developments in the styling world has been reported by the British Steel Corporation. Now, the British Steel Corporation is their equivalent of uh, Carnegie, Illinois, uh, one of the big steel companies. It's like uh, U.S. Steel, see? And they're having a fantastic styling problem in the steel mills. At Skin and Grove in Yorkshire, for example, which is a big steel country, maintenance men are obliged to swill down the main walkway around the blast furnaces every second afternoon. Guess why? At Consett in Durham, where they had to build a protective steel canopy over the ladle repair area in the melting shops, it takes six men to clean up after the starlings every morning. Now, the starlings are not throwing beer cans around, friends. So you know what they're cleaning up. 
at Workington in Cumberland, the area between one furnace and another has been likened in the corporation's journal, Safety, quote, we repeat, a wet, white skating rink. I'm telling you, they, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just quoting a very official journal, so don't write me angrily about what is this. Is, this is a, a scientific journal. Now, here's what they're doing about it. Despite everything that has been done to keep the birds out, they are returning year after year in greater concentrations in the steel mills. Leslie Horsfield, a safety officer, says they started, that is the company, with anti-roost compound that looked like toothpaste and came in fairly expensive tubes. They spread it on the handrails on top of the stoves. It stopped the starlings from landing, but the first time the fuel technologists went up to examine their instruments, the stuff came off on their hands and clothes and peeled the paint off everything they had. <laughs> so forget it. <laughs> well, then the steel men, here's what makes me like starlings. Listen to this one. The steel men tried toy mice. You know, supposed to be mice would get them. But after two nights of avoidance, the birds snuggled up to the unsuccessful deterrents, quote, as if they'd been friends all of their lives. In fact, they got to like steel mice. They then tried recordings of starling distress calls. Well, I could have told them that this doesn't work. You know how they, they put the... You know what? I, I saw that work. I saw that tried one time. I was on hand when a big experiment was made and uh, somewhere along the line, some guy who's an expert on starling talk had decided when the starling goes, Wah! that he is hollering, look out, cheese it, here come the cops, or here comes another shotgun. And, and they, they recorded the distress signals. And they put it on a tape recorder, and I happened to be around. And uh, this was tried in a park in Philadelphia. I was there when the great experiment was tried. They set the tape recorder down. They put out about four gigantic Bozak speakers, you know, to make it sound like a big, a real big starling is hollering, see? And uh, they set it all up. They had 150 watts of audio, the, the whole bit, see, everybody hid in the bushes, see? And 40,000 starlings are walking around, and they're quacking, they're sniping butts and hollering at the chicks. You know how starlings are doing, see? And they're swinging and yelling, see? And the guy says, okay, here we go. Everybody, get your cameras out, all right? And the cameras are all trained on the spiel of starlings. And he walked quietly. He was, he was disguised as, a, as an elderberry bush, see. He sneaked up to the tape recorder. <laughs> the starlings are looking around and sniping butts and yelling, see. And he pressed the button. And you could hear this thing start. And you see the reels going around. And all of a sudden, the loudspeaker went, wah, wah, wah. The starlings stopped in mid-flight. You know, they turned around. And you could see one of them take the cigar butt out of his beak, you know, and puff a little smoke into the air. They didn't fly. They just sort of stopped, like frozen. And the, the, the technician, this guy that was inventing it, he turned right. He said, watch it now. Wait till I hear the second one. Wah, wah, wah. 65,000 watts of audio, the biggest starling ever heard in the park, Fairmont Park in Philadelphia, boomed out, say, the starlings looked around. You know, they were hearing the sound of this big old mutter starling somewhere, see. They didn't move. They didn't fly away. And then quietly, one starling said to another, Oh! And you heard the second starling, Yeah, in a bush, he said, And then out came the tape recorder. Wah! Wah! 
little did they realize that they had not recorded a distress signal. They just merely recorded an obscene word in Starling talk. Well, what happened, of course, was that all the birds were sitting around waiting for the punchline. And, <laughs> and within five minutes, Starlings were coming from as far away as, as Jersey. You know, they were flying over to hear the big Starling. And by nightfall, the Starling population in Fairmont Park had tripled, all of them waiting for the Eddie Fisher of the Starling world to come on, you know. <laughs> now, I, I actually saw that happen. Now, I could have told these Englishmen that that would not work. It says they tried Starling distress calls, but the effects seemed to be strictly local and, in fact, seemed to attract birds. That's right. They tried sulfur candles. They tried crisscross threads of nylon. You know, like a big spider with didn't do any. Smoke bombs. And I like this one. Triple strength bangers. Now, I ask you, what the hell is a triple strength banger? I mean, that is obviously a banger that's three times louder than an ordinary or standard banger. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, nevertheless, they tried a triple strength banger. But nothing worked, because what happened? At the first gigantic bang, all the birds lifted together in the air and, quote, fouled their persecutors. <laughs> what a moment that must have been in scientific research. <laughs> 40,000 birds go up in the air, and all at once, I could just hear them giving the, giving the order, you know. <laughs> Unload! Wow! <laughs> Says after the third night, they didn't even do that. The triple strength banger would break windows for blocks around, and they would just sit and look. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, a man with a shotgun merely chased them from one building to the next. You never see me be able to kill him. <laughs> well, the great works at Workington, now this is the biggest steel mill in all of England, is reported now to be attracting a tremendous proportion of all the starlings in West Cumberland. Ask what he was doing to try to shift them. The disillusioned safety officer said, and we quote, nothing, because nothing ever does. They're just part of the works now. Well, now, I'm going to tell you, it's funny that this is being reported on now, at this point in history, in 1968. One of the first things that hit me when I started to work in a steel mill when I was a kid, I was 16, and I wonder how many of you people who have never worked in big industry know this. The amount of wildlife that lives with and around and is attracted by heavy industry. You know that, that you would walk along, I remember walking along between the 10-inch merchant mill and the 100-inch plate mill. This is the most clangorous, banging, 20th century, uproarious, uh, scary, noisy, smelly world that you can ever conceive of. And the whole ground is filled with starlings walking around. You'd go out to the park, no starlings. They love it in the steel mill. Yeah, everywhere we would go. And now it's becoming official. They're reporting on it now. But any guy who's ever worked in a steel mill can tell you that starlings always have loved steel mills. And they sit on the top of the buildings. They ride around on the, on the ladles. Oh, yeah, they, 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 they work there. You can even see them with little, little steel helmets on their heads, you know, wearing little safety shoes on their claws, little goggles, you know. They love it in a steel mill. You know what else loves it in steel mills? Cats. 
cats flourish tremendously in steel mills. Cats, mice, and one other thing which you will not believe, the 10-inch merchant mill, when you would go in at 4 o'clock in the morning, which is a gigantic building, tremendous building, it was like 40, 50, 70 feet high, just stretching up into the darkness. And the top of the building was always in darkness. And all around would be these enormous machines rolling steel. You'd come in at 4 in the morning, look up at the ceiling, and if you walked along without paying any attention, you would see all along the beams up there, owls, owls. So help me, owls. Now, these were barn owls. You know what a barn owl is? Little owls. He's about the, oh, maybe, you know, about 10, 12 inches high. And they'd sit up there and look down and watch the, the activity going on. And out on the roof, just, just on the other side of the owl's roost inside of the 14-inch merchant mill of a 100-inch plate mill, there would be thousands and thousands of starlings. All, by the way, the, the starling in the steel mill does not uh, smoke cigars like the city starling. He chews tobacco. Well, you know, this is what they do in the mill, you know. They chew mail pouch and eight-hour cut plug and all that. And <laughs> these starlings are walking around. And the, and the steel workers, of course, accept it totally. They're just part of the scene. They don't think anything about it. Starlings, owls. And one of the most interesting animals that I saw living in a steel mill was a weasel. A real live weasel, which you always think of, you know, as a wilderness animal. But the, the, the hundred inch plate mill had next to it a scrap yard that had all kinds of big piles of scrap steel. And it was infested with weasels. And every once in a while, in the morning, you'd see a weasel go skidding across over the snow or over the grass, just running from one pile to the other. The owls rise up, and the starlings squawk and yell. It's, uh, it's just the way it is, friends. You aren't going to beat nature. And I'm, I'll bet the starlings think that man persists anywhere. And they're wondering about it. Just hang loose. It'll work out, I guess. But I can't help but think of those poor little, those poor, sad, innocent little cockroaches in that TV, that color TV commercial. Oh, we're a violent nature. Oh, what a violent country.